Today's scripture reading will be from Hosea chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, or 1 to 10. And we will be reading from the New International Version. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Jekeziah, kings of Judah, and during the reigns of Jeroboam, son of Jehoaz, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness in the Lord. So he married Gomer, son of Dibliam, and conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will be put at the end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I'll break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Fomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Loruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should all at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by how, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord, their God, will save them. After she weaned Loruhama, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, for which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I'm not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted, in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and they will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. This is the word of our Lord. Good morning, HJD Church. Can you guys hear me? All right. So we're going to have uh, just the, the children so they can head to the back. They're going to lead you to a children's service at this time. Okay. So <clears throat> it's my first time being up here. It's a new facility, a new, new area, and uh, I'm kind of digging this place right now. It's a nice atmosphere. And uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Israel Rodriguez, and I help lead out the men's ministry along with uh, Pastor Stephen Leon. And as always, it's always a privilege and honor just to bring God's word this morning. And I trust that, that God will, will speak with us uh, this morning. And so the title of my message this morning is, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is Thy Faithfulness. So how many of you ever had a broken heart before? Now, I'm not talking about the broken heart that comes with uh, uh, family disappointments, uh, parents, siblings, or friendship. But I'm, I'm talking about the, the broken heart that comes from... Uh, a relationship, a boyfriend, girlfriend, a significant other, engaged couple, or even a married couple. And most of us experience this because broken people tend to break things, right? Tend to break things. I mean, I remember my first heartbreak. It goes way back in elementary. 
um, the third and fourth grade, all right? Uh, there was this girl, and I thought she was the most prettiest thing I've ever seen. And so I was interested in her, and she was interested in me. In the, class, in the classroom, uh, all knew it. Um, but we weren't officially, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend because, you know, she wasn't allowed to have girlfriends. Like, I have girls, and they won't have girlfriends until they're about 30. Uh, right, Pastor Finn? I mean, he has three girls, too. There you go. Amen. So anyways, um, this girl, uh, yeah, as we were interested in each other, and um, I remember the following year in fourth grade, there was this new girl that came in. And then it was made known to her that I wasn't interested in her anymore, and my eyes was now into this new girl. And that was a sad thing, right? But then, later on during that month, a couple months or so, there was a new kid that entered the classroom, and she was interested in him. That was like the the audacity, right? (laughs) But anyhow, you know, my heart was, you know, broken, to say the least. You know, I was sad. I was disappointed, right? Now... You might say to me, but Brother Israel, I mean, you guys were kids, kids. You know nothing about faithfulness and commitment. And I would say you're right. But then how do you explain all the adults who still don't know the meaning of faithfulness and commitment? Christian maturity is seen in loving and being faithful and committed to God and to one another. And when we don't know how to do that by, um, and when we don't know how to do that by his grace, then we're we're not being faithful. We're not being, we're being immature kids, right? People are still moving on to the, to the next best thing that they see. Dropping relationships like used, you know, dirty rags. Because today in our society, marriage, you know, seems, you know, very insignificant and unnecessary in our day. But God instituted marriage as a reflection of the love and the relationship that God has with his church, with his people. The Apostle Paul says in, in the letter to the Ephesian church that, that we are the bride of Christ. The prophet Isaiah said in the 54th chapter, in the, fifth, in the fifth verse, he says, for your maker is your husband. Your maker is your husband. And our God understands, you know, the things that we go through when we experience heartbreak. For he too have experienced heartbreak through the unfaithfulness and lack of commitment of his people Israel. He was forgotten when, his, when the fickle hearts of, of the Israelites began to be drawn to the praying gods of the land. So before I continue, I just ask that you would just bow with me as I, as I pray and ask for his blessing. Father God, we just thank you for this morning and, and how you already moved uh, this morning through the service and just the worship team and just inviting your presence. And we know that you're here, oh God, but we thank you that you touched our hearts. God, I pray that you would just take these uh, few words, oh God, and that you would multiply, that you would speak to us, oh God, today. Lord, I pray that you would animate me, you would empower me as I rely and trust upon your spirit this morning that you would have your way. In your name we pray, amen. And so as you heard in the announcement, uh, you know, this morning, as Pastor Steve and I was speaking about, we're moving into the new series, uh, The Mind of Prophets. And just want to just briefly say there, they're called The Mind of Prophets, not because they're insignificant or they're, they lack any importance, but in comparison to the major prophets, uh, the major prophets had, uh, by their sheer volume, volume uh, there were like 30, 40, 50 different chapters. But The Mind of Pro- uh, Prophets are relatively small. And so they still uh, have a lot to say and are, you know, relevant for us today. And so just a quick background with that. When we think about the, the, the minor prophets, there's two things that kind of, you know, sit in the back as you're reading this. And it's one of judgment and one of hope. These things are interwoven in, in, these, uh, in these books. It's judgment and of hope. And so uh, 
the nation uh, of Israel wind up becoming split into two kingdoms, the, the northern kingdom and the, and the southern kingdom. And um, one of the things that they struggled with was idolatry and God had to judge them. And so he sent his prophets to go ahead and speak to his people. And so here, beginning in our book, in our first series, The Minor Prophets, we're looking at Hosea. And so the first three chapters of Hosea speaks about Hosea's marriage with his wife, who also was unfaithful. God was using his story as a real-life soap opera for all of Israel to see. Hosea not only spoke prophetically the words of God, he became a living message for all to see. Hosea would experience firsthand the broken heart of God. And then from chapter 4 to 14, we read the specifics of all that God wants to say and wants to do concerning his people. So we read the words of Hosea in the first chapter, verse 2. Go take to yourself <clears throat> excuse me, a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. I mean, this is a strong accusation made by the Lord. I mean, just saying it makes me cringe. Three times he says whoredom in one sentence. You think he was trying to say something? But you see, this verse is very important for us to understand because it is the diagnosis and symptom of his people. It's like, excuse me, doctor, what's, what seems to be wrong with the people? Well, it appears to me they have heart failure, evidenced by forsaking the Lord with manifest symptoms of whoredom. Again, it is an accusation the Lord makes against his people. In verse 4 to 9, we see Hosea obey God and takes a wife by the name of Gomer, and eventually she would prove to be unfaithful. Hosea has three children with her, and the Lord names them. Verse 4, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of of the house of Israel. And the first son, Jezreel, actually has two meanings. Uh, Jezreel actually means the Lord sows or the Lord scatters. And in this context, it's the Lord scattered because eventually God will scatter them throughout the, uh, the uh, four nations. He will cast them out, out of his land. And so this was God's just punishment and judgment for his people. And then Gomer has two more children. <clears throat> One is called No Mercy, and the other is Not My People. And these names represent the heart and attitude of God in this particular time with Israel. And so with that, I have two points this morning. Just two points. My first is God is faithful to judge sin and his people. God is faithful to judge sin and his people. Uh, many of us don't like to hear the word judge. It brings uh, you know, negative feelings for some. But when God judges, his judgment is always righteous and accurate. The scales are always balanced. It's not like Lady Justice who needs blindfolds over her eyes. For he is not partial. He's not partial. He's not a respected person. He's not biased in his judgment. It is pure and a righteous judgment. And there will be no appeal in his court. And the patriarch Abraham knew about this. He knew about God's righteous character when he was interceding for the wicked city of Sodom and Gomorrah. But he was afraid that his nephew Lot was actually going to be swept along with God's judgment upon the righteous. And he tells God, will not the God, the judge of all the earth, do what is right? And God did. God judged that city as well as he judged his own people. And I think about an event that happened nearly about 30 years ago. 
1991, a, a man suspected of driving under the influence of a substance broke multiple inf uh, infractions while he was driving a vehicle. And most people remember the young man. He was about in his 20s. His name was Rodney King. He was an African-American male who was tased and beaten badly with batons. He was treated inhumanely for his violation. I'm not saying that what he did was right. Driving under the influence and being reckless on the road, it was wrong and it should have been penalized. But the response of the four police officers was a breach of their power and their authority, for they broke the law and two wrongs don't make a right. This, arm, un, this unarmed man was beaten badly to the point of having some brain damage. And when these four police officers were tried before a jury, they were all, uh, they were all, cleared, they were all cleared of the charges, not guilty. They were declared innocent. And what do you think this produced? This is something that the state of California would never forget or can erase from their history, the LA riots. The LA riots. I read an article about uh, during that period and it said there was a three days of unrest where more than 60 people were killed, 2,000 were injured, 7,000 arrests, $1 billion in property damage, and more than 100 fires ablaze throughout the city. Why the uproar? Why the response? Do I agree with the response of the people of LA? No, of course not. But do I understand? Oh, I do. Injustice. Injustice. But there was, a, there was an 89 second video that revealed the excessive force on this unarmed man who no longer resisted his arrest, which produced a legitimate emotion, anger. Anger towards an unjust ruling. The people were crying out for justice. And I'm not here trying to stab at the police officers because uh, you know, we, need, uh, we need police uh, you know, officers, we need the authority. They don't wield the, the gun and sword in vain. But we should all be held accountable for our actions, right? But my point is that the unrighteousness and injustice naturally produces anger with the desire to right what was wrong. For a broken law requires justice to come into play. It's the rules to the game. You step out of bounds, whistle blows. Pull on that helmet, flag is thrown, you're penalized. Hit below the belt, point deducted. Break God's laws. Justice. And God promised Israel, his chosen people, that they would obey him, that he would bless them. And if they disobey, he would bring a curse. Because the relationship that he had with Israel surrounded, was surrounded around the law. We actually read, <clears throat> excuse me, we actually read the, the, the covenant agreement stated in Deuteronomy 28. For God betrothed Israel to himself on the other side of the Red Sea when he delivered them from Egypt in the wilderness at the foot of Mount Sinai when he read the covenant. Now, a covenant is almost like a contract uh, where it involves two people or, or, or more a party, and, and there's some agreements there, and if you break it, you're going to be penalized. However, a covenant runs much more deeper because it's not based on a business deal. It's relational. And we get our picture from marriage. You know, you, you get married, you enjoy uh, the relationship already started, then you, then you get married, you enjoy the fruits of that marriage, and as long as you're, you're keeping your, your vows and keeping each other happy, you're going to continue to enjoy the fruit of that relationship. But if you violate it, it's when things start to go downhill, right? So marriage is a perfect example of what a covenant is like. And as I said earlier, that the church is the bride of Christ. So I just want to just read a couple of verses. 
about this covenant agreement so you have an understanding. I'm just going to read it for the sake of time in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 28, verses 1 through 6. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field, and blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flocks. Blessed shall your basket and your kneading bowl be. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. I mean, who doesn't want this? I mean, everything that you touch, God blesses, and you prosper. Probably except for my wife. I mean, when it says that I will bless the fruit of your womb, I mean, she's like, Lord, please stop. You have overtaken me. Please make it stop. No more. But God has been faithful to bless them, to keep his word, a nation that was blessed with God's abundance. But in the same breath, God says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Curse shall you be in the city, and curse shall you be in the field. Curse shall be your basket. And pretty much it's the reversal of the blessing that he was going to give him. And at the end he says, And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth. And this is what happened to the northern kingdom as God sent Assyria, and they were taken captive in 722 B.C. And God has been faithful to bless Israel. He has also been faithful to bring his curse upon them because of them breaking um, their, their covenant vows with the Lord. This curse is actually the wrath of God. This is the wrath of God. And when I think, of, when I think about, when I used to think about the wrath of God, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I didn't want to think about. You know, most people want to reject this doctrine. They don't, they don't want to embrace it. But it's a biblical doctrine. It's a true doctrine, and we cannot run from that. But you see, I used to think about wrath as this green giant. And I'm not talking about the, the jolly green giant. I'm talking about the scientist, uh, Dr. David Bruce Banner, a.k.a. the Incredible Hulk. I mean, he was a perfect picture of rage, and anger, and wrath. I mean, just stay out of his way. Because everything that was in his way, he was going to destroy, and he will destroy you. Because the Hulk loves to smash, right? Right? He loves to smash. But you see, God is not like this, right? He's, he's not an angry green giant ready to, to put a pounding on you, right? He's not like you and me when we, when we lose our temper with our grown-up tantrums and stuff, right? No, the scriptures declare God to be long-suffering and slow to anger. And I like what Tim Keller said. Uh, he gave an illustration in regards to God's anger. He used a picture of a, a, a tea kettle. You put on the water, and the, the water starts to boil. And, you know, it takes some time, right? And then it starts to get hotter and hotter, begins to bubble. And before you know it, right, the tea kettle, you hear it, it's done. It's at its maximum. But some of us, myself included, Sometimes I'm more like a NASCAR. Zero, zero to 60 in 10 seconds. Brrr, you, know, just, you know, just angry. But God is not like that. God is patient. God is long-suffering. 
But you see, that's why one of the reasons why he created the sacrificial system because, and the, the, the sacrificial system is known as a, the, the substitution uh, system as well because the scripture clearly says that the wages of sin is death, right? The soul that sinneth shall surely die. And God had no desire that we would die, but instead he would kill an innocent lamb in our place because he had no desire for the death of his people. But after some time, the sacrifices became a stench to his nose because the offerings weren't done in faith. They were abusing it. I mean, they have already exceeded God's long-suffering and patience, and now it was time for judgment. So what is God's wrath? According to Romans 4.15, the first part, it says, for the law brings wrath. In other words, the law brings justice. And God is righteous and just to do that. And, and unlike Rodney King, God will bring about a just verdict and an appropriate sentence. And this is what the prophet Hosea was declaring to Israel. My just judgment and anger will be poured out on you for your spiritual harlotry, which was seen in your covenant unfaithfulness. So what were some of the things that brought about God's anger? God's judgment. Well, we, we, would be to, you know, we would be wise to consider some of the things that, uh, that the Israelites wind up doing that really angered the Lord. The prophet Hosea, speaking for God, says that the priests led the people into sin and idolatry. The kings were cruel and misrepresented and represented God. This speaks to me of the churches and, and leaders today um, who, who preach on prosperity or, or, preaching, or teaching false doctrine who are more concerned, um, you know, they, they call it a seeker-friendly church that focuses on numbers and not wanting to offend the people, they preach a watered-down, compromised gospel. We got to represent God's message. We got to speak the truth. And it's at the pulpit, I believe, and, 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 and our leaders across the nation were... Many are being led astray with all these false teachings. The gospel is pure. The, the, the gospel convicts. The gospel changes lives. And as leaders, we are, we are called to speak the truth, even if it offends, even if it hurts. All right? You know, some of uh, the other things that, that angered the Lord was just an injustice that they practiced, but especially and specifically idolatry. Especially Idolatry. Israel loved to worship the foreign gods of the land surrounding them. There were several gods that they loved to worship. And, and one of the gods that they loved to worship, his name was known as Baal or, or Baal. His name actually means uh, Lord, owner, master, or even husband. And these are names that rightfully belong to the Lord only, not to these false gods. And Baal was known as a, the storm god or fertility god, which speaks on abundance. But God is the one that brought abundance. God is the one that blessed and it's interesting that, that how over the generations and centuries, these gods changes. Baal was a Canaanite Phoenician god that later by the Greeks were known, was known as Zeus. Later on by the Romans was known as Jupiter. Later on, Norse mythology, it was Thor. Unfortunately, the mighty Avenger, right? But these gods all spoke of God of the sky, God of the thunder, the, God, the gods that provided. 
And we, can, and we need to be careful, church, because we can wind up doing the same thing, not only in our society, but within our church and even our own unfaithful hearts at times. We can look to other things and think that they bring blessing. We may look to our success, our bank account, and really it was the Lord who allowed us to prosper. It was the Lord who bought those blessings. But yet, we want to acknowledge it that it was because of our strong studying and getting a, a degree or working so hard or, or our smarts, and this is why we have this, and we give credit to ourselves for something else instead of, that, instead of uh, acknowledging that it was God who caused us to prosper. And so God was faithful. God was faithful to judge his people for their sin, for their broken vows, for their covenant, you know, um, for transgression against the covenant. But surely, as I said, that God was faithful to, to judge. He was also faithful to restore and forgive a repentant people. God is faithful to restore a faithful and repentant people, which is my second point. So I tried to, this morning, I really wanted you to feel a little bit as far as that God hates sin. God is angry at sin. The Bible said that he's angry with the wicked. Their refusal to acknowledge God, the refusal to bow down and worship the one true God. God makes no apologies for himself. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But God loves us so much that he made a way for us to come back to him. He made a way. And actually, in that covenant agreement, God already knew his people. God wasn't caught off guard. In Deuteronomy 30, he actually makes provision. I'm going to read the first three verses. Uh, it says, When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. See those two words? Return and restore. Return and restore. And then the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hands. You see, God is holding just and he must judge sin. Everyone here in this room and watching online deserve the just sentence before God. The evidence is stacked against us. The one who sees all and knows all testifies to our guilt, and we deserve the just wrath of God. But like I said, the very heart of God is love. And I like what one pastor said. He said, um, and I'm paraphrasing, the very nature of God is love. For the Apostle John said in his letter, God is love. It's part of his essence. Who he is at the center of his heart. Nowhere do we read in the scripture, I am wrath. We don't read that anywhere. This pastor continues and he says, we read how God is provoked to anger, but never is he provoked to love because it is natural. It flows from him. 
You see, when we enter the new paradise of God and God remakes everything, there's one thing, one aspect of God that we would never see and that we would never experience again, and that is the wrath of God. We will not see that. The story of Hosea and Gomer is a picture of God and, and his redeemed people, a picture of a fickle and unfaithful people who played the harlot many times. For most of us, if our spouses would you know, have an affair, you know, maybe once, maybe twice, hey, maybe even three times before you say, sorry, babe, three strikes, you're out, right? We're not putting up with that, right? Some actually may stay around, but why? Out of fear, convenience, comfort. But what about love? What about sticking around for love? I mean, that's a hard thing to do at this point because your trust is broken. And it's always in the back of your mind, again, she's going to break my heart or he's going to break my heart. But God did not just say to Hosea, go get your wife. He said in chapter 3, 1, he says, go again. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulterous woman, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. Don't just get her back. Love her. Love her again. And so Hosea bought her, in, in verse 2, for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lech of barley. barley. See, Gomer put herself in such a position that her former lovers didn't want her anymore. She actually was on the market, the slave market. Whether this was at an auction or her former lover you know, trying to sell her off, the price was actually uh, cheap. Because the price as mentioned here during that time, it was actually double the price. But here, it was at a bargain, half the price. She no longer was valuable to anyone except from the eyes of the one who would purchase her. Imagine the condition Gomer is in. There was a time when she pursued and and wanted uh, her lovers. Her lovers who gave her comfort and pleasure, provided for her. She was living the life that she wanted and chose. But now... She was rejected and treated harshly and seen as worthless. Now imagine the scene. She's standing at the auction block. While she's standing there and others are looking at her with disgust. As her reputation by now has far exceeded her shame and her guilt. And they are hesitant to pay the full price. But then she hears a voice. A familiar voice. She looks back. Behind the crowd, she can almost make him out. This man comes forward. He's moving the crowds about. He has a satchel in his hands. He goes forward. He raises with his hands held high. He says, I will pay the price. I will pay the price. She drops to her knees and she sobs and wonders, how in the world could this man love me? After all I've done to him. So after he purchased her, in Hosea 3.3, 3, it says, he tells her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. In other words, you will be mine and I will be yours. You will be faithful to me and I will be faithful to you. Church of Jesus Christ, or rather bride of Christ, our Lord has not redeemed or purchased our freedom at a bargain. 
but he purchased us with his own very blood, his own life. This is the story of our redemption. This is the gospel displayed in the book of Hosea. And God saw it fit to use a man and put him to such heartbreak so that the Israelites could see and testify of God's goodness. And though we are unfaithful, he will always be faithful to his character to seek us out in our darkest moments and call us back. But how do we activate this process of forgiveness and restoration? And I don't want to make this sound transactional, but there is one condition. In Hosea 5.15 it says, and this is the Lord speaking, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress seek me earnestly. What is it that God is requiring of us when he says, until they acknowledge their guilt? Repentance. Repentance. The text tells us that God wants us to come in all humility and acknowledge our guilt, acknowledge our sins, confess our wrongful deeds, and ask that he would forgive and remove our sins. Brothers and sisters of the Lord, this message that Hosea is declaring is not for the pagan nations around him. This was for the nation of Israel. These were the, the, the apple of his eyes. Now, there are some parts that still apply to Israel today as there are some eschatological implications. But this message is primarily, predominantly for his people, for his church. So let me ask you this morning, have you drifted from the Lord? For some time now, has it been a couple of days, a couple of weeks, maybe a decade or two? It doesn't matter. It does not matter. Have you been held captive by your sins? You feel there's no way out. You feel that God doesn't want you. There's no way back. You feel that you sinned away his grace and his mercy. You don't think that God could love you again. The story of Hosea and Gomer reveals how God will pursue us even in our filth. This author, Dane Ortland, who's the author of Gentle and Lowly, and I recommend this book. It's a beautiful and awesome book. I read the book almost like twice already from time to time. I just you know, peruse the chapters and just read it because it's so rich. But listen to what he says. He says, we all tend to have some small pocket of our life where we have difficulty believing the forgiveness of God reaches. We say we are totally forgiven, and we sincerely believe our sins are forgiven. Pretty much anyway. But there's that one deep, dark part of our lives, even our present lives, that seems so irretractable, so ugly, so beyond recovery. To the uttermost, in Hebrews 7.25, means God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevice of our souls. Those places where we are most shamed, most defeated, more than this, those crevices of our sin are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. His heart willingly goes there. His heart is most strongly drawn there. He knows us to the uttermost. He saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. We cannot sin our way out of his tender care. Now you might say to me, wait a minute. <laughs> Brother Israel, you just spent 15 minutes in this message talking about how God judges sin. 
Now you're saying that no matter what struggles we are facing in regards to our sin, that we, can't, we, we don't have to expect judgment? That's exactly what I'm saying. And with confidence, I can say we will not face judgment. But let me add this. Lest anybody think that I'm saying that it's okay that we sin, which is the same argument that Paul had to fight against. Should we sin because we're not under the law and under grace? Of course not. But listen to this. The Hebrew writer said that God disciplines every children that he loves, those he calls his sons and his daughters. And discipline, he disciplines us, you know, when we are in error, to train us in righteousness, to correct us, to instruct us. It is a fatherly discipline. It is not a judicial punishment. We can't confuse those two. His discipline is done out of love. So remember I quoted earlier in Romans 4.15, it says, For the law brings wrath, but the rest says, Where there is no law, there is no transgression. And Jesus did away with the law, for Israel had a relationship with God that surrounded the law. But the relationship we have with God is based on grace, because of what he has done for us. We no longer need to fear judgment and punishment. We don't need a clause in this covenant agreement with God in Christ. He will no longer cast us out. For Jesus said it himself, for all who comes to me, I will in no ways cast out. You know, Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. The curse that we all deserve fell on him for our crimes against him. And Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. And Christ is the only one who lived a perfect and sinless and righteous life. The life that we were called to live but could not. But now we receive the blessings by faith through him. God's judgment on us to those who have put their faith in the Son receive a judgment from God. But that judgment from God towards us is not guilty, declared righteous, and we are given new life. And we're just coming off the heels of Good Friday, and this is what we are celebrating. Because the thing with God, as I said, God is holy and just. He must uphold his righteous laws. If, as I said with Rodney King or, or someone who commits murder and the evidence is stacked against him and because he's crying a, a river of tears and he says, Your Honor, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. I was just a little angry. And the judge says, well, see that you're really remorseful. Go ahead now. Go on your way. Might possible another ride will be in the newspaper. Unjust ruling, right? But God must uphold his righteousness. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, God was able to bridge the both together, his justice and his mercy. The wrath of God was poured upon his son, and we received the mercy. A beautiful, pivotal moment for the history of all humanity, where we don't have to face that judgment anymore. The scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us or appointed us unto wrath. The scripture again says in Romans 5 now, since we have been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. Man. No more wrath. No more judgment. We can enjoy our relationship with God. And God has given us his Holy Spirit that we might walk with him. We mess up as a father. He's going to correct us. 
he's going to correct us. Because we are his, God will be faithful to restore us. And I know that there's maybe in this room here this morning, watching online, we might have a few backsliders. We, have, we might have some wayward children who's been gone for some years now. But today, through this message of Jose and Gomer, hopefully you understood that God still wants you. That God is calling you back unto himself. That you, don't know, you no longer need to fear, fear the judgment. You don't need to feel that God doesn't want you back because he has proven that on the cross. You know, sometimes when I struggle and I mess up, I kind of do that often. I sometimes beat myself up and I feel this weight of condemnation and guilt. It's like, man, I messed up again. I messed up again. And I feel like he's not present or he's not near. But you see, I just belittled what the cross of Christ has done for me. I don't need to stay in that place of condemnation or guilt. I like what Pastor Nas said in the Good Friday evening service. He said that before, uh, before he created everything that we have here, the Father, the Son, and the Trinity were, were together in wonderful communion, not needing anything. But out of the outflow of his love, he created us so that we can enjoy and participate in that wonderful communion. But then there was a time in our time where he sent the son and Jesus on the cross would experience something that he has never experienced in his life. He wasn't afraid of literally the horrors of hell that was, he was about to face or the death that he was about to experience, or the pain or suffering. It was separation from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you see, we don't have to experience that. Jesus experienced that forsakenness, that rejection, so that we might be accepted. At this time, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. When I went to my first Bible college and I lived on campus, I met another student there who was also from the city, so we had a, a lot of things in common, similar backgrounds. And we became good friends. But a couple of months into the first school year, you know, he was just getting into trouble in the school, and uh, he wound up leaving the school, and, and, and not in a good way. And so when he went back home, unfortunately, he, he, he backslid. He was going through some struggles. He lived a life of uh, sexual immorality, uh, immorality. He got into drugs, strong drugs like cocaine. Uh, he even mentioned um, narcotics like Klonopin. Uh, he was angry, always getting into fights. And he loved getting into fights because it was another way to release his pent-up frustration. He was miserable. He didn't, he didn't know how to get back to God. <clears throat> he didn't know that God wanted him back. And so for the next 17, 18 years or so, running from the Lord and just withering away. Finally, he came to the end of himself and he said, uh, I don't know what I'm doing. He, he, his mom uh, you know, is a Christian. She lived out in Michigan and he decided to go home. He stood in Michigan for about four months, and he told his mom everything that he was going through. 
His family were very supportive during this time and, and prayed for him. And he would read a lot and pray a lot with much tears and anguish, he said, until finally he just surrendered it all. He came back to the Lord. And his mom said, won't you stay here? Stay here in Michigan. Stay with us. He's like, no, nah, I don't know if I can do that. So let me pray about it first. And he prayed and he felt a strong urge that God was calling him back home to the city. But honestly, he was afraid. He thought that he was going to fail God again. He thought he would mess up. But he knew that he had to go back home. He went back home. And long story short, less than two weeks, he sees one of his buddies knocking on the door. He lets him in. And he offers him some strong drugs. A drug that he wouldn't be able to say no to before. But he said this was the first time in his life that he felt the strength come within. He said, no, I don't do those things anymore. He stopped hanging out with his buddies. Now he's, uh, now he's going to church every day. He's reading. He's praying. I mean, he still struggles, he tells me. But he has a hunger for God. It's the first time that he's able to truly understand what worship is. Worshiping God for his faithfulness. I said, I just spoke to him not so long ago, a couple days ago. And he said, it's been a year since he's been drug free. Yeah. That's what God does. If you would heed his call, God will restore you when you humbly come before him. So, Lord, I'm no good. I'm deserving of your wrath. But I know that you're more eager to forgive and to restore. So I said, I know there's some here who may have, <clears throat> you know, backslidden in the bad way, gotten into things that they shouldn't have gotten into, but they're also being backslidden at heart. You go to church every Sunday, you read your Bible, you attend groups, you do all the religious things, but yet there are other gods, other competing gods in your life. And God is a jealous God. He will not compete with anything else. So this morning, he is gently pricking at those things. And he's telling you, let me be your provider. Let me be your joy. Let me satisfy you. Let me fill you. God's arms are stretched out on the cross as his way of saying, I'm open for you. So church, this morning I want to say that God is faithful to forgive and restore a repentant people. And lastly, as I said, this message is mainly for the church. But I think I would do injustice if I didn't preach or mention this part. For those who don't have a relationship with the Lord, there will be a day of recompense. There will be a day of judgment. There is a day of wrath where he will right every wrong. And in John 3.36, it says, eternal salvation for those who believe. But to them who don't believe, the wrath of God remains on them. So my plea for the church this morning and for those who don't know, come back to him because he's waiting for you. He's waiting. Father, God, I thank you for your word this morning. God, I pray that you would have used this feeble vessel, these few feeble words, <clears throat> that you would have used it and spoken to your people. 
I sense a, a, a weightiness, Lord. But I pray, O oh God, that you would embrace them with your love. The God that you want to restore them and pour your blessings upon them. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will continue to do your work in their hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.